Cola, Coca-Cola. Welcome back to The Invisible Filter, the podcast dedicated to unraveling the mystery of mental models and how they shape our lives. For this week's episode, I sat down with Chris Magdalensky, a graphic and UX designer who worked on iconic graphics like Play-Doh and PlaySchool. Chris and I discuss how he pivoted from print to digital design, the importance of aligning to others' mental models, and how we can become more aware of our own mental models. I hope you enjoy. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. <laughs> awesome. But Chris, I think first off, would love to just learn a little more about you in terms of your personal and professional background. Of course, I've taken a look at your LinkedIn, but would love to hear more about you know your kind of life journey and um, you know kind of how you ended up from graphic design. It seems like starting to more kind of UX design, just at a high level. We'd love to learn more about you and kind of your story before we dig into some of those different sure. experiences. Sure. So yeah, so you saw, yeah, you probably saw that most of my career, right? Probably about 20 years or so has been firmly in the, the visual or the more traditional graphic design realms. And really a lot of it was the print world. Most of it was print packaging, uh, consumer, you know, consumer products focused stuff. I worked at the toy company Hasbro for six years. I mean, I did, it was very, in a very specific thing, right? Um, and I never did, I never got into web design, right? Back when it was your, you know, it was less UX and more web. I didn't, I didn't do, I never ended up doing much digital stuff. Right. But then it was six years ago that or so now that I got, um, that I, I got a job at IBM and to, for the life of me, I laugh about it because one, I don't remember applying to IBM. <laughs> I probably did because yeah, I was at a point where I was sending a lot of resumes up and they called me up and they're like, Hey, we got your resume. We want to talk to you. I'm like, sure. You're IBM. Okay. Like, who's this? They're like IBM. I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, and after a, a quite a re- interview process, I got in type it, and and it was and there was no print. Print was gone. Everything was digital. And it wasn't when I first started, it wasn't quite UX. Like I was, it was a little more just like general graphics for that they needed for their websites or, or marketing materials. I helped them with presentation stuff. Um, I have a background in video too, so I helped them edit things and you know, internal podcasts and internal videos and so it was kind of a mixed bag. Um, about a year in, everything changed. And they brought in a, they, they built out a formal kind of product design team. So almost over, like it, pretty much almost overnight, my role went to UX designer, having never have done it before. Interesting. Um, yeah. And then it was sort of just learn. And I was fortunate in a lot of ways. It was, I was fortunate to have that opportunity. Um, I didn't go to like a boot camp. I mean, I took a couple, maybe a few classes here and then I did some online stuff, but I never went, never got formal training in it. So I got to do a lot of this learning on the job um, where, and it was a lot of like visual design, you know, it was a lot of this UI visual end of things while still doing, being involved in the user testing and things like that. Yep. Um, and then just recently, as of, I guess, three months ago, I changed jobs because um, IBM is a painfully unstable company. Um, so that's the long and short of that. And now I'm a single, 
I'm a sole UX designer in a smaller company that deals in like uh, multifamily rent, you know, real estate, like um, apartment complexes and things. We do cloud software for that. Um, and then my role is a similar thing, but I run everything. I run the research. Uh, I do all the wireframing, the discovery work, the competitive research, um, all that. Um, when I work with two product managers and, and the development team. So that's where I am now. And that was sort of a, I always say I kind of got a little lucky. <laughs> it's a lot of people ask me, well, how did you do it? And I'm like, right. I hate to tell you, I got a little lucky <laughs> in certain ways. I, there was probably a, I mean, I, I had to kind of advance my skills once in there, but to get the opportunities right. to jump in, because um, it was extremely hard to move from print to digital. I really want to explore that further. Yeah, okay. because yeah. to me, that's that's just like a, and so the topic of the book that I'm writing about is, is your mental models, which is hopefully a familiar concept given your UX research and yes. design experience. And to me, you know, mental models are basically an internal representation of our external reality. They yeah. kind of manifest themselves in our thought patterns, the way that we reason, the why we think some things are more important than others, et cetera. Right. And to me, you know, you, you pretty much had to change a lot of your mental models in terms of, you know, the medium and the way that users interact with it is fundamentally, at least to me, very different in terms of print versus digital. Yeah. And so I, I would love to kind of dig in into how you went about adjusting your own mental model um, you know, I, I know you mentioned classes and other things, but I'd love to, you know, really dig into how exactly you were able to transform your own thought patterns and ingrained beliefs yeah. about maybe users or the medium as, you know, your, your career shifted as well. Um, it's, it's interesting because I don't remember it being a difficult transformation for me, right? Um, and I can attribute that to a few things. Um, mm -hmm. the first one I think we'll sit there right off and say is after 20 something years of, Hey, go design me a logo, then design me 15 more. Hey, make this package. And I was getting tired of the traditional graphic design. So it was easy to kind of shed that aspect of it for me. Got it. Because when one of the big things between the, the biggest thing to switch is that it's not about how it looks really at its heart. It's about how it operates. So I think it was very easy for me to be like, oh, so I don't have to worry about like making this thing look amazing. I mean, not saying, aesthetic. No, but that's not the goal. We, we, right. we want to understand the thought process. It was a lot, it was very much easy for me to make the transition from that end of things. Cause I- Interesting. Very, Okay, the second thing I think was that I had such a background in these other mediums like writing, filmmaking, I mean, generally stories, more storytelling mediums. And I think that there's an aspect to that that comes into play too, right? You have to understand the stories of your users. You have to understand the story yep. of your product. You have to understand all this. So that was another easy -er transition to make. Right. Um, and not saying that like it all came overnight, right? It's, I'm still right. reinforcing it, but it was easy to kind of shed one thing and move to the other. The, and the last thing mm. 
I think that was the most important to me. So I said, I said that it was the, the shedding of the kind of traditional designs um, yep. stuff. The, the, I was always a fan of, I'd always consider myself an armchair psychologist. Hmm. Um, our good friend of mine and I oftentimes will just sit and talk over why we do things we do, why friends of ours have done the things they do. You know what I mean? Like we like yeah. to get into the psychology and the sociology of these things. So I think it was also very easy for me to suddenly be able to be in a position to be like, I can absolutely put myself in a position to try to understand and empathize with a user. Um, and that, and that's what it was. And then it was, and then it became a matter really uh, to having to finalize, make the transition even out of IBM to a different place that was to transition the portfolio the, from the very functional way of how a graphic design portfolio looks and what's expected there to the in very, very different requirements for a UX portfolio. Right. It, it became elementary for me. So I hope that, I hope that helps. Extremely. Yeah, it's super interesting because uh, I guess, you know, just hearing it, it, it sounded like it could be a pretty difficult transition, but hearing more about, you know, just your, your background and the fact that, for instance, you were already aligned with the fact that maybe you care more about usability over aesthetics. Um, that was one point that maybe, yeah. you know, because to me, what's interesting as well with mental models is how do we unlearn those ingrained thought patterns right. and beliefs. And it sounds like for you in this example, it was pretty easy to unlearn just because maybe you weren't so married to the, let's say philosophy of graphic design and your other creative experiences also gave you, um, let's say like a, a framework at a high level of these stories, the importance of stories and yeah. how to look at that. So I thought it was really interesting in terms of your ability to unlearn certain patterns and beliefs from one you know, artistic medium and being able to smoothly transition to another where a lot of other people, maybe, you know, for me as well, I entered a, a field, you know, I was a finance like background right. college. I decided to do product management out of okay. uh, university okay. in cybersecurity, which is a field like I knew nothing about. Nothing. I knew nothing about product management either, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. And it was interesting. I had to unlearn similarly a lot of the ways right. I was working, the yeah. mindset into product. But it, that was a hard transition for me. I, I was not at all close to those beliefs or those ways of thinking. But it sounds like for you, maybe you, you just you happen to be and you had a lot of exposure to yeah. bits and pieces. And and never underestimate the power of becoming dreadfully bored with something right. I, like the idea of and I, you know and I, I don't want to make it sound like I don't enjoy making these beautiful graphics right or, or having right. created these logos or the, you know or the packages that were they're beautiful um but when you when I got to such a level with all that with and then even being able to use illustrator and photoshop to, to this such a high level you shut your brain off and you're just, it's easy to start just going through the motions. Whereas coming back to UX, it required a different thought process, a different engagement, which was engaging. 
right? I mean, to have to, like, I couldn't just sit there and turn it all off anymore. And, and, and I, I knew exactly, they need a logo for this. I know how to get there. You know, they need a pack. I need just it become muscle autopilot, it, almost autopilot. Whereas yeah. this was not, <laughs> not anymore. You know, some of it is, you know, we're going back to just building out the wireframes can be things like that, but right. The nuts and bolts of it. It's not. So yeah. Super interesting. And Chris, for a moment, before I dig into some of your professional experiences, I'd love to, for a moment, just take a step back and learn more about, um, you know, your personal kind of story. So where did you grow up? Um, did you always have an interest in these creative, let's say, different fields? I see a guitar in the background as well, which is awesome. But I'm just kind of curious to learn more about, you know, the, I think the child is the father of the man. And I'm wondering, you know, how, how was your kind of upbringing? And maybe how did that reflect or lead you to the person that you've become today? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Let me, because um, I smile about it, right? I remember very vividly for years and years, I wanted to be a scientist, um, more like, a, like an astronomer or, a, you know, a cosmologist, you know, cosmologist, you know, planetary scientist or astrophysicist. And I held that for years. Um, but then I hit the math wall and I slid right off that, that, that <laughs> I did not have the number, do not, did not, will. So that was that, right? But I remember, and this is a story that I wrote for my inspiration story that we had to write. Um, I don't know, this is where I like to put it all, right? I don't know if it's true or not, but one of my earliest memories is my father bringing home a comic book. I had to have been about five years old. I think it was about 79. It was uh, a comic by Marvel called Rom, Space Knight. Um, I don't think they've ever done anything with Rom since then, but um, father brought it home, but the first issue home, he goes, I'm gonna read, how about we read this together? Him or he'll read it to me, you know, um, at every month. Well, new issue, come on, bring it home. So every month, my father, I'd sit with my father, and he would read me this comic book, and I'd see these pictures and be introduced to this world, you know, these this universe. I mean, you're introduced to the Marvel universe, and I that had to have done something. I think that that all at once wanted inspired me to want to draw. It inspired me to want to write. Um, it probably later inspired when I did try to do some filmmaking. I. And I, that was always carrying on. So once I got to college and realized that maybe things in math weren't going to go, you know, I went to graphic design and I, you know, and it worked, right? It was working. It worked for me. Um, but I think that that story in itself was what, what had such an influence. Um, That's amazing. Uh, yeah. That is so cool. And I was just smiling throughout that as well, because I personally feel a little similarly about um, not the Marvel comic universe, but kind of different manga and the Japanese, let's say, comic universe. Okay. And all right, feeling inspired from a lot of the same ways that you kind of mentioned in terms of the depth of the art, the stories, the getting into the metaverse. And I will not lie. 
a form, another formal, and this, you glad you really one of these instances that really had an effect on me from that medium was tuning into Robotech, Macross, when they used to play it on America, you know, I, but the, the two moments where it was the first time I had ever seen a comic, a cartoon character die in the first season. <laughs> the second biggest thing was watching humanity lose a war. Mm. And it ultimately being taken over for the, that file, whatever, for I believe it was the Invid invasion, right? That, you know, and you, you ending one season where humanity just lost and you're sitting there as a kid going, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> um so manga and anime you know and uh, you know i i'm not so deep in so much i mean i i know that the classics have always been big in akira ghost in the shell um yep. i've tried a evangelion but it it that's gonna take some time <laughs> oh 100 for a lot of reasons we probably yeah. can't get into it today there's a but... lot to, <laughs> it's, like, it's almost like i need a quiet room maybe maybe just a day like a few days to sit with it but yeah but it is a part that played a part too i mean i always love that stuff right that is so cool oh man i wish we had more time but there's a lot that i'm sure we we have in common or can chat about yeah but chris i'd love to maybe dig in to a little more of your professional experience okay this might be some time back which is you know the hasbro experience you've had i saw that you worked on the Play-Doh and the Play School lines, which are, they were a big part of my, you know, childhood and millions, millions of other kids, which is awesome. Yeah. I'm kind of wondering from a mental model perspective, you know, you were put in a role where you were designing for an audience that you couldn't naturally empathize with, you know, kids, uh, you know, we have these kind of adult frames of thinking and mindset, but I'm wondering how you were able to align with their you know, thought patterns, their sensibilities to create designs that, you know, kids would love where maybe adults maybe don't care for, but kids, you know, loved it. And I'm curious how you were able to, you know, maybe empathize with that audience. It's a good question because the, the one thing that we were always talked, told, talked to, what we talked about a lot in Plato specifically, and even play school, right, was when it comes to packaging, you're not actually appealing as much to the child mm, you're appealing to the parent um because they're the one buying it that ultimately has the purchasing power they're the one that are going to walk by and they're they're the one that's going the kid may reach for it right but the parent ends up um making the decision mm. now I, I, now, this was a different time, right? So I can't really get into like what, because really I feel like, I don't even know how to explain it, but we didn't design in the way that I would design now. Like marketers did their marketing research, but as far as the design for Play-Doh, like a lot of that was, was kind of set and I was kind of executing against it. There would be areas where I'd have to come in and be more creative, but by then the guardrails are so well in place. It just became a matter of understanding the style I'm working in 
and then executing against it. Um, it to and but there is a valid there you know beyond that right when to talk about getting into the mindset of a, a child um i can speak to that probably a little bit because i still consider myself a, a 46 year old child um back then my desk was covered in toys um much like it is grown to be now it, you know and i think that what's helped me and probably all of us to great illustrious since at Hasbro was being surrounded in it. I mean, you would walk into Hasbro and there's a massive transformer sitting there, you know, a statue, a transformer statue. There'd be the monopoly man down there. There'd be posters of star, you know, it, you'd be, and everyone's cubicle would be buried in toys. There'd be toys that there's toys everywhere. It's, it's almost impossible to not because you're almost saturated in it and if you're someone like me who was just a, kind of an overgrown toy collecting child even at you know even now or even back when I was 20 whatever I was mm -hmm. it was easy to make the jump. it was again not hard to make the jump got it that's super helpful but you know even though it wasn't difficult and I understand what you mentioned I think just being exposed to that world and that yeah. mindset through you know what you mentioned and appreciate all the detail because that's it's super interesting and what a dream come true and I think I, to, I, yeah I think you have to be you know open to joy right I mean you know right. to, to really um yeah just be be open to under because there was a story there was a story that's kind of related and, and I remember not for me personally but Hasbro went through a point where they wanted to bring in a new CEO I and they, or maybe as a new head of U.S. toy division, whatever, it was a high up position. They brought this gentleman in from, um, I believe he was from Campbell's Soup. He didn't make it very long. He made it probably, if, if he was lucky, he made it six months. And the, 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 the kind of the teardown after, the buy, you know, the, the kind of the, the, you know, the retro on what went right. wrong was that when people would say, when he, he would pick up a toy in a meeting, and they could tell he was looking at it, but just by his look, they could tell that he wasn't processing it. It's like he was an alien and someone were trying to process what this thing really was. And I think that's probably, and again, while they couldn't put it into, you know, empirical terms, right? he couldn't flip the mental model. It was clear, like he just, he didn't have what it was. Right. Super interesting. I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Chris, mm. I want to be mindful of our time and your time. Yeah. I think the, the other question I have is more related to now your current experience, yep. clearly, you know, in UX research and design where you're interacting or using the concept of mental models mm -hmm. pretty often. Yep. I'm kind of curious if there are any stories or examples you can think of, of when, you know, the research that you've done culminated in a product or experience that really matched users' mental models and led to a, a smooth experience, or conversely, the opposite? Are there any cases where the ultimate product or service that was being developed didn't map to users' mental models and, and there were issues there? Maybe it wasn't your work, but it was previous work and you realized there was a mismatch. Kind of curious if there are any stories or examples of that that may come to mind. I'm, I'm so early on here. It's we we're still kind of 
netting out what you know what we're you know how how our stuff's going. Um, Got it. I do have a story from IBM though that mm -hmm. um, we did work on something. You know, and and for the sake, you know, I'm trying to simplify it, right, for both the sake of time and for you know uh, confidentiality. But it was essentially like um, uh, a corporate, a company, a competitive intelligence tool, right? So someone who can go, someone from IBM, competitive intelligence, could go in and look up a company um, and find out sort of how what they're doing in AI, what they're doing in cloud, what they're doing in these these major industries that IBM is working in. We were approached by the team that was shepherding it to, to do improvements on it. Um, so we started a round of, um, I don't know what happened. I think we started, I think what happened was our boss came in and she had an idea of, well, they're not using it because of this and we just have to change, you know, we have to change X. Okay, so we, we went off, we built some wireframes around her recommendation of what X was, but really probably should have gone back and done a bit more research into it. And we found that actually the users were operating with a whole different mental model. Like, I think the old system was they looked it up by, they, they went into industry and they looked it up. They, they looked up companies via going into AI. So they click on AI, list of companies come up. Whereas after research, we found that really what they were interested in was being able to go to the company level, click into that. But they, they want to search for companies over industries. That was a major pivot we had to make partly through the process. We had already undertaken. Fortunately, we didn't go to code with anything, but it, it was a, definitely a cautionary tale about, about probably not hitting the ground running with research first. Right, makes sense. And the importance of kind of aligning to your prospective users' mental models so that right. the solution that you develop, you know, fits their frame of reference and you're enabling a more frictionless workflow rather than forcing them to adapt to a paradigm that right. maybe doesn't make sense to them in, in whatever in, they see it. And a big company like IBM and we were internal facing, it, one of those things we always had to deal with was this idea that someone was going to come in with these preconceived notions. And sometimes it's tough to push back against those. And sometimes even if you, you can't push back, sometimes it's so easy to just get caught up in them. You're like, okay, fine. Um, but it's where I learned a valuable, we, we all learned a valuable lesson about, okay, just let's stop, you know, take a breath, <laughs> reassess. So I hope that answered. Super helpful. And Chris, just the last maybe small question I had is, you know, I think that example is perfect. Um, what it illustrates to me as well is, you know, the difficulty with being aware of those preconceived notions, you know, some people might call it bias. It might be more specific, which was that example. Yeah. I think what's interesting about UX research is that an external third party, for instance, you are tasked with understanding the mental models of other people. Oh, yeah. And maybe it's easier to do that because you're removed from the situation and you can look at things more objectively and concretely. Right. But my question for you is, if you were just an individual person looking to become more aware of those ingrained thought patterns, which you tend not to be conscious, uh, you know, consciously aware of, do you have any recommendations for how individuals can go about understanding their own mental models um, with the goal of 
identifying any biases or preconceived notions, helping them to unlearn different habits, you know, whatever the goal is. I think the first step, though, is to try and understand your mental model and your kind of thought patterns. Any kind of suggestions or ideas based on your experiences or your thoughts of how an individual can go about doing that for themselves? This is a hard one. <laughs> I saved the a, toughest one for last. This is yeah. a hard one. No, um, <laughs> I, I, have an, I have an idea um, of this. And I think that for me, it's very difficult to answer these questions because you don't want to give the answer of, well, you just do it because that's not an answer. To me, and hopefully you can follow me on this, this is, this is mental work, right? This is all, now we're getting into just, this is, beyond, this is not about just kind of sitting down with a mouse and executing or typing a report or what, that's all part of it, right? It's all thought right. work. And I think that there's something to be said for when you're faced with things like this to be, where mindfulness comes in. Exactly. Stop and really, and maybe the mindfulness isn't necessarily just about your personal meditation, but stop and take a look at the, take a look at kind of this, the problem you see, or for someone getting into, let's say for someone who wants to get into UX, they need to understand this kind of, what kind of thought process going involved in it. And then they have to have a, I think, a sit down with themselves and really think about that all that in terms of how, how they would interplay in it. So you're having conversations with yourself about empathy. You're having conversations with yourself about um, being able to see past how maybe you use an, an app, for instance, as opposed to how someone else might use it. It's, but I think like it's a, a lot of mind work and maybe right. even a point where like a lot of in our writing work, you're, you're actually writing stuff down as you're thinking about. Um, I think it's the only way you can start to switch your mind about it because then you can go into these situations and say, okay, I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to think about all the stuff I thought and then I'm going to try to, you know, apply it here. I, it, hopefully that makes sense. It's, it's kind of an abstract concept. <laughs> no worries, but to be honest, and I didn't want to leave with that, but that's where I'm thinking as well in terms right. of how, how do we actually do this? It's right. being exactly as you said, it's that mindfulness mindset in terms right. of trying to understand your own thought patterns, you know, why the, the why behind the actions or the beliefs that you have, which is difficult. Like it's really hard one, just to be cognizant of that and to train yourself to be aware. And then I think the next step is how do you keep yourself accountable? especially if it's a behavior you're trying to change or preconceived biases. Like, and I know we're, we're past time, but really quickly, I just wanted to mention there was a, a recent example in my life. I was walking down the streets of San Francisco, two blocks in front of me were a group of black men that were dressed, I'd say not, not very shadily, not, you know, very professionally, somewhere in the middle. Right. I was walking towards them and instinctively I turned right after noticing them i you know i i just my i think the instinctive response was danger you know unsafe right maybe walk away and then i processed right after why we why did i just do that if those men were not black and a different race would i have done that would it have mattered if yeah would it have mattered if they were wearing different clothing you know would i have acted differently and that's that it bugged me that i wasn't 
you know, consciously kind of aware. And that I think is the first step. And then holding myself accountable now that I know that I have that tendency would be the next time that happens to remember once again, like I, maybe I feel a certain way instinctively, but why? And is that correct? Should I listen to it? Anyways, I just think that's, it really ties to what you're thinking. You mentioned in terms of the mindfulness attitude you need to take. Yeah. And then also, you know, kind of keeping yourself accountable for whatever learning or change that you're trying to think of. But right. I just wanted to, I just wanted to share because I think it, you're spot on. And absolutely. Thank you. So a quick question, if you don't mind. So yeah. did you mention, so is you, is your book going to be more or less about trying to make a transition like this for UX or is it a little, is it, how specific is it to the, I'm so sorry. I just realized I didn't even give you like the blurb ahead of, ahead of talking about it. That's okay. But the, so in a way it's almost better because you're not influencing anything from me. You didn't anchor on something. Right. Right. So I think it, once again, it's in its early stages, like I think Mm -hmm. most of our books, but the idea is to explore and then apply the concept of mental models to everyday and interesting challenges that people face, whether it's confronting bias and automatic thinking, unlearning behaviors, um, addressing anxiety. If you think about CBT and shifting your mental patterns there, but there's a whole host of these situations that we might find ourselves in every day or some other less common but interesting situations where applying mental models, you know, I think can be helpful either to reduce the negative impact in the case of bias and other things, or optimize the positive impact in terms of solving problems better, working better, better together as a team with shared mental models. But that's kind of the core of the book is to help individuals address those challenges and then achieve their goals through actionable takeaways, keeping mental models in mind. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. But I just wanted to say thank you so much because honestly, this is, I think one of the best conversations I've had in terms of the stories that you've been able to share, you know, you're clearly a very intelligent guy in the way that you think about things and you have a lot of fields that you're interested in and, you know, know about. So Anyways, I just wanted to say thank you for being very generous with Absolutely. your your time, your experiences. I, I really enjoyed this. And, you know, even if it's not about the book, I'd love to stay in touch. Uh, I think yeah, you're a really cool guy. Like I was going to say, you reach out anytime. You reach out anytime. I'll, you know, I'll try to, I'll make the time. Thank you. And I just wanted to say also, I love fantasy and sci-fi. I'd love yeah. to read any excerpts or things that you have. If you're comfortable sharing along the way you're looking for more thoughts or feedback, I, I would love to help out any way I can. I absolutely will. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Yeah. Really appreciate your time. Yeah. Hope you have a good rest of the day and a it's good week ahead. You too. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.